The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stop Take. My name's Goro Sodi. Joining me today is Research Director Nathan Bell. Hey, Nate. Hey, Grav. We don't often get you on the podcast, so um, happy to have you here, Nate. Thanks for your time. No, I've been addressing the huge crowds at the ASX Investor events on the Saturday at 3 p.m. Perfect timing. That's right before everyone <laughs> goes understand. to sleep after their coffee and biscuits. Look, we'll, we'll come to that in a second, actually, because there was something very surprising I wanted your comment on, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, let's just introduce our analyst, uh, Nick. G'day, Nick. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you guys? Not bad, but uh, Nathan's been busy. Nathan, you've been around the country a little bit doing these roadshows. Um, I think roadshows, especially the ones run by the ASX, are always a good indication of how much interest there is in equities. I would have thought with the share market being down and bombs going off everywhere and the headlines being quite negative, that share market investors would be a bit shy. But you've seen pretty big crowds turning up to these ASX events. Yeah, the one in Melbourne in particular, uh, there must have been uh, at least 500 people, I reckon, four or 500 people on by the way, I'm terrible at guessing yeah. crowd numbers unless they're at the MCG and the Hawks are playing. But uh, to see so many people there tells me that people are still genuinely interested in buying stocks. And and I actually thought because there's some uh, sort of a, a lot more alternative stock market related things to go to and got Livewire these days, for example, that does its own events. Uh, I thought maybe after going to Brisbane where there was lesser numbers that maybe those other forums were pulling in more people, but uh, Melbourne changed my mind because it, it was a, a big crowd there. And we've got Sydney uh, this week where they're expecting, uh, I mean, they say there's a thousand people coming, so I expect that there'll probably be seven, 700 or something. But to me, that, that's telling you that, uh, you know, no one's shying away from stocks. And the other thing yeah. I actually quite like is you may remember, Gaurav, that uh, we got laughed out of a, an ASX um, luncheon sort of gig. Um, in Sydney one day, it was pro- I reckon it was 2014, and I got up there yeah. and told everybody that uh, the salad days for the banks were over, and uh, and I remember getting heckled and people laughing and they and people yelled out, you know, yeah, we've heard it all before, and here we are a decade later, and there's basically been no capital growth in those businesses at all. And actually, if you look back 20 years, um, some of those banks have produced no capital gains, and all you've got is a dividend yield. So. Yeah, when I've yeah. been talking about my couple of um, small cap stocks that uh, intelligent investor members will be well familiar with, so there's nothing to talk about there. They've actually been nodding their heads when I've been poo-pooing the banks and, and owning a portfolio like the index, which is basically just uh, the A-REITs, the iron ore miners, the banks, uh, and CSLs. I think it's about a 6 or 7% weighting in the index. And people have finally realized that after 16 years of no capital gains, that you can't just focus on buying those big companies and collect the dividend and expect you're going to do great. Uh, I still think it's incredible and I sound like a broken record, but I'm amazed the bank's returns have been so poor when we've been through the most incredible mortgage and credit and housing boom ever in history. And the returns are still poor, which just shows you that you've really got to focus on the industry trends, not the macro environment. You can't just buy anything. Price matters all those things. And so to be actually seeing people 500 heads bobbing up and down in the green with me when I'm saying these things is actually really unique. I wonder if that means we should be getting back into the banks now. That worries me. 
whenever we're yeah, faced with a, with a consensus like that. <laughs> well, funnily enough, I have been uh, thinking about it and looking at them and, um, you know, I don't know how much more damage the, the competition can do over time, um, but obviously you haven't got the big tailwind from, um, you know, just massive refinancing, which is sort of starting to slow up. Bad debts are fine, you know, it's finger in the air stuff as to how bad they get, but, you know, it's hard to predict a, a massive meltdown and it's pretty unlikely, but, um, you know, it's more just about the net interest margins, I think, and the it seems that the, the war for refinancing is starting to slow a little bit and you have got higher interest rates and obviously banks are slower to pass higher interest rates on through their savings, so they do get that margin uplift, but the competition from Macquarie in particular and now some of the neo banks and overseas banks are starting to come back you're actually not seeing um those sort of high net interest margins anymore they're staying flat for other reasons contrary to history so but they're what the banks are now to me is their utilities their return on equities have come down to more something like a utility and that's exactly what they should have always been you know all that all they do is they're essentially just giant um sort of not able to reverse atm you're sort of just sucking in all this paperwork and like, mm. it's not like people are really sitting there analyzing all these home loans. It just goes through a mm. computer and it ticks the boxes and, yeah. and that, that that's all they do. So essentially the whole thing's automated. So there's no reason mm. why the return on equity should be 17 or 18% for these types of businesses. And, and also they're still priced pretty keenly. I know the prices are down from where they were, but there's pretty good reasons for that. Now, speaking about um, machines and AI, Nick, we had something quite unusual happen with um, with, with OpenAI last week. The, the founder, the CEO, the guy who's widely credited with kicking off the AI boom was sacked. Can you just let us know what happened there? And and did I hear correctly that he ended up at Microsoft now? And, and what, what does that mean for Microsoft? Um, you did hear correctly that he'd been offered a position at Microsoft, but he's actually now been reinstated at OpenAI. Oh, it's wow. Been, okay. What a circus. Yeah, circus. Um, so so he was, why, why was he sacked? What, what happened? Oh, the, the board offered this um, pithy excuse that he wasn't communicating properly um, properly with them, but it's just it just seems extraordinary. I mean... This is a guy that's led a company that's created ChatGBT, the generative um, AI engine that's the Man. fastest growing uh, company to 100 million users in history. Uh, it was only Man. launched a year ago. Um, it's you know really responsible for us talking about artificial intelligence today and all the investments companies are making. And um, you know, to fire him only a year later just seems uh, yeah incredibly <laughs> incredibly short sighted. But uh, it's. A really interesting thing to look at the corporate governance here and and have a little think about that and um, and what that means for investors. It's really a mundane and boring issue and becomes a tick the box sort of exercise, but it can really um, destroy value in a lot of cases if it's not um, implemented correctly. And that appears to be the case here. So OpenAI has this unique board structure where it's a non-profit and six board um, board members essentially run the company. Yeah, and two of those were Sam Altman, the co-founder, and Greg Brockman, the chairman, who were just fired by the other four without any notice. And so, they then so had both, this... of the, both of them were fired, were they? Yes, last Friday. Yeah, oh, right. just, okay, okay. Yeah, one of the board um, members, I think, called or set up a Zoom or Teams call with them and pretty much fired them. Um, and so the underneath this sits a for-profit company 
And so Microsoft owns 49% of that and has invested $13 yeah. billion. It's so last valued mm. at $90 billion. They weren't mm. consulted with the decision. They didn't know it was coming. So mm. this one decision could have blown up the entire $90 billion valuation of the <laughs> company because 750 employees signed a letter saying they'd quit. And that's the entire workforce. It was just wow. incredible. Just, wow. Yeah. I, I've never seen anything like it, really. And so Microsoft initially had agreed to hire um, Sam and the other and the other bloke. I'm not sure about that. But then yeah. you're saying they're both now reinstated back in OpenAI. Now nothing yeah. has changed. We're back where we were Nothing's on Friday. Changed. Okay. Yeah, except those board members that revolted or led the coup are now gone. Yeah. So they're oh, they're gone. gone. They came, um, right. They're gone. Yeah. yeah. Microsoft okay. also offered to um, uh, to hire anyone else from OpenAI that wanted to leave at the same compensation rate. Um, yeah. So it was yeah, it was pretty incredible. That's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. What a what a circus. Yeah. I'm surprised that that Microsoft, with such a large holding, wasn't able to exercise any control about what happens over there. Generally, you see, if a shareholder owns 49% of the business, they have some sort of say about who the CEO is and and what happens with those big decisions. But not in this case. No, no, and that's that nonprofit. It's very unique structure and. Once a nonprofit boards in, actually, there's not much you can do to actually remove them. It's it's really? incredibly hard. There's no you know AGM vote, and you know we're going to vote the director off and change all this stuff. It's it's really hard, and um, so Microsoft didn't really have a lot of legal options either. Um, and it's just their only other option was to hire all the talent and write that investment off. Essentially, um, that yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of amazing that a company that's the second largest in the world would you know, uh, make an investment under this governance structure, but it sort of highlights, I guess, the opportunity of artificial intelligence and you know, get in at any cost and you know, not worry about that sort of stuff. What really surprised me, Nath, I don't know if you've come across it before, but the importance of particular individuals in some of these new technologies has really surprised me. I don't think we're used to thinking about technology with individuals playing such an important role and this one, Sam appears to be absolutely instrumental in the running of, of the whole business. I mean, the entire workforce revolted. Is there, are there any lessons from that with the ASX? Do we not pay enough attention to individuals in charge of companies? Yeah, look, it's interesting because uh, the way I look at this is we're always looking for these founder-led businesses because they have such a great track record over time. And I think it's still one of the uh, last remaining reliable free kicks um, obviously, it doesn't mean you can buy any company with the still founder led. Obviously, Jer Jerry Harvey, Harvey Norman's one of those that we certainly haven't bought and doesn't uh, right. fill you with comfort that he's still running things, um, even though he's not officially the CEO or anything. He hasn't been for years. His wife is. Um, I do remember, that Nathan. Said that I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember when, <laughs> you, uh, when he called you? Uh, uh, Nathan had written this article saying that Jerry Harvey was no longer fit and you know where things are falling apart at Harvey Norman. And, and Jerry called Nathan, and what did he say? He, those first words he said to you on the phone, that's hilarious. He said, uh, so you want my job, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and we all wondered, what would it look like? What would it look like with Nathan uh, Bell in charge of Harvey Norman? There'd be, there'd, be, um, there'd be AFL stuff everywhere. The whole place would be turned into a football store. Yeah. PlayStation's no the funny more. Thing, <laughs> the funny thing is... I'm sure I've seen um, video before. I can't remember what show it was on, but uh, he was he was talking about. I actually can't even remember what he was talking about. 
Um, and uh, I know, I'm sure he had that article printed out and pinned up, and I think he actually reached for it or pointed at it on the, in his office. <laughs> oh, dear. And he said, see, like, people were trying to sack me. You know, I knew he was pointing yeah. at our article. Oh dear! Oh dear! Um, um, the other thing too, I just I'd add to this too that on the ethical front, you're yeah. seeing, um, and we're going to talk about um, Lavisa and board goings on and CEOs in a second with you, Gaurav. The right. uh, one of the big ESG things is about ticking all these boxes about having a certain amount of independent board members, having a certain amount of female board members, and all these types of things. And yet, one of the reasons why I think the founder-led businesses have worked well, or at least the ones that you know have worked well is that they tend to surround themselves with good people who buy into the culture. And the problem with the box ticking is you're bringing in people, bringing people in who might be independent or, but they don't know anything about the business. They don't buy into the culture. They don't buy any shares. So, uh, you know, I really think there is, I I was going to say it's a big risk, but it's actually already happening is that there's just all these people trying to earn a living out of ticking boxes on this ethical and ESG front. And I think that's a, a real shame because it's not adding value at all and I think it's actually working the opposite where uh, CEOs and important people in business are starting to get, get upset and annoyed because they can't get remunerated properly because these box tickers uh, see something that's unique or different or maybe they just don't like for some particular reason and yet you don't see any of these people buying any shares in the company and they've been some of the biggest value generators for shareholders you know, and still long ways to go, you know, decades ahead for these great businesses. Um, and then people trying to stop that, you know, just because they're sort of looking after their own little part of the world and trying to make themselves important. And uh, it's really something I'm really trying to rally against um, with our ethical fund. Yeah, I, I was at a lunch yesterday and a, and a fund manager had joined us and um, he mentioned um, Minrez and he was saying that Chris Ellison, the founder and CEO of Minrez, gets into more trouble with the um, with the Australian Shareholders Association and those corporate governance types because he breaks pretty much every rule of corporate governance. Um, but the success of MinRes is founded on him actually breaking all those rules. Like You wouldn't have the success without the rule breaking. So you're in this weird situation where the um, the, the the governance hawks are criticizing the CEO um, for taking measures with the, when those measures have actually led to the success of the entire business. So it's, it's, it, it really is a, a great example of um, of bureaucracy and box ticking taking priority over results and, and action. And um, yeah, but it shows you how rules sometimes take on a life of their own and they become the, the goal for the sake of their, for their own sake. And the thing here too is like, we're not talking about doing anything illegal or hiding things in the reports yes, or right. anything like that. All, all we're talking yes. about is just these arbitrary sort of ideas or numbers of people you know, you know, sitting on a chair like, like it, it is ridiculous. Even when you start to think about it, but can you imagine right. building a ten billion dollar business from scratch, not raising capital? Uh, I, again, I don't know what mid-risk market cap is at the moment offhand, but just you know, th- these are the size of businesses that people are building and bigger. And then you go to the AGM and you're going to talk about another great year, and this is like year nineteen that you've been doing a great job. You got all these great stuff. Yeah. You're investing. Your profits reinvesting in the business. You got all the future to get excited about, and then you've just got all these ESG people sitting there telling you doing all these things wrong and striking your remuneration and stopping you from incentivizing other staff members. Like, yeah, like oh, I, I get why these people are frustrated. And I'm, uh, and sometimes I think when you see these people in the media, for example, or or anywhere, and they're frustrated, 
it always plays badly. You know, you always, right. it just looks bad when people get frustrated. But I get it. Like, I, you know, you're 55, 60 or, you know, whatever, and you've been building this business for 20 or 30 years and everything operationally is going great and you've been one of the stars of the ASX. And here's these little crop of white-collar workers coming in with their little clipboard and ticking these boxes and telling you what you've got. You know, like, just, like, it's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Ghostbusters, but that that scene in Ghostbusters where... um, you know the the guy from the EPA is trying to shut down the uh, the ghost jail where where Bill Murray's character has, has kept all the ghosts and he shuts it down and then the, everything goes to goes to crap. There's mayhem everywhere and then the, you know that all happens. I always think about that scene whenever I see um, a guy from the ASA or some other government's person pop up at an AGM and complain about something that's going on. Like they just don't understand what's happening and they're they're pointing to their little rules and saying you've got to do this. Um, I was on a I remember being on the a TPG annual. Um, uh, AGM and um, there's another guy. I am going to pick on the ASX. I think they're the ones who are often um, at, at fault here. Um, the guy from the ASA stood up and said, "Oh, David Teo is both the chairman and the CEO. Um, that's wrong. And um, and there's not enough women on the board. And David Teo owns too many shares and he dominates it. And you could just see everyone in that room turning around, thinking, "Mate, you've got this all wrong." <laughs> <laughs> it was just um, a classic case of, of, of a pinhead coming in and having no idea. That that it's he's he's that he's that bloke from Ghostbusters. That's who he is. It always seems so to me these uh, founder companies too. Um, Dick Dart is another one with David Dicker. Yeah, and Dick Dart is a great example. Yeah, yep. yeah. Voting down the remuneration there before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice That's segue, it. Gorev, to the Lavisa AGM right. that you went to, and I know you're going to write an article about it anyway, but. I did see mm. the headline that Brett Blundy had to get in and defend the CEO's salary. Mm. Yeah, this is a tricky situation because um, you know I'm. I think I've said this many times, but um, there are in most cases following the rules um, leads to good results, but there are some cases where breaking the rules leads to the best results, and I think that's what's happening here at Lavisa. Because if we were if we were looking at the report of any other business, and this is a $2 billion business, and if we saw that the CEO is earning sort of $30, $40 million a year, and I think his ultimate package is sort of $70 million a year over a couple of years, I I think our our reaction would be, hang on a second, that doesn't seem right, that seems excessive. But when you look at the specifics of what's happening in this case, I have no problem with it. Um, LaVisa is my largest holding personally. We hold it across the funds. Um, it's a business we've been enthusiastic about for a number of years and has done very well for us. Um, and uh, I have no problem with the, with the remuneration structure. Brett Blundy, who's the chairman of LaVisa, owns a 40% stake. And I think he said in the meeting that I'm paying half the salary. You know, It's coming out of my, my pocket um, and I'm okay with it. Um, and um, you know, that sort of shows that the person who's most invested in the business, who has the most to gain and the most to lose is the one who is the most comfortable with the current arrangement. And that's because um, the CEO, uh, Victor, Her- Victor Herrera, I think I've got his name there, right? It's a, he's, he's an exceptional individual. I must admit, I raised an eyebrow as well, but having gone to the meeting and, and heard him speak a couple of times now, I'm just in, incredibly impressed um, with that CEO. And he's funny because he doesn't come across. If you if you, I don't think I've ever come across someone who is so unimpressive after five minutes, 
but is incredibly impressive after 30 minutes or, or one hour. Um, you know, he, he's, he's quite um, low-key, um, but then when you get into um, get into ideas with him, we had a really good chat with him after the uh, AGM um, a couple of days ago. Um, you, you learn that this this is a deeply impressive man. He rolled out 600 stores in China, lived in China, speaks fluent Mandarin. He says his Mandarin is better than his English, um, understands this company uh, uh, really well, understands that country really well. He spends about 250 days of the year in overseas locations, visiting stores and doing deals, flies economy in every flight he does. Uh, Brett Lundy kind of joked that um, everyone who works at LaVisa hates Victor because he flies economy, which means like they can't play anything other than economy. Um, but they love Victor because he gets stuff done. Um, and there was a question, you know, it, we were talking in a group, uh, a couple of us, and, and someone asked him a question um, about a store in Paris. He said, look, I was in Paris. I was looking for this store you just opened. I couldn't find it. It has the store open or is it closed? And, and Victor straight away gave him step-by-step directions about how to get to that store, you know, with, with the uh, consistent with the story, he's he's, up, he's he, This is a company with 840 stores. He knew exactly what store was talking about. Knew the exact location of it and how to get there. This sort of detail is is really impressive. To do what Levis is they... doing and to roll out hundreds of stores requires a unique amount of dedication. And I have no problem with um, paying someone a lot of money uh, to get the result that we're after. I think the longer term targets to like get to the 70 million, like they're pretty aggressive. I think it's yep. more what's a little bit shocking was how much he's earned in the short term, but because mm-hmm. he had such a good job, was it Imdex or was Zara? One? Inditex. Where, yeah, Zara. Yeah. Yep. So, yep, so I've mixed, mixed it up with the other company, but um, to get Index him out of there. The, uh, where he, is the mining services yeah. firm. <laughs> <laughs> not, quite, not quite the same. That'll be funny. Not quite the same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be me if I didn't mix up some names. To to get him out of there where he had such a good situation already, it was always going to take money. So it's sort of Man. not like he was getting paid necessarily for the performance early on at um, La Visa. It was more just you had to pay him a decent pay packet to get him out of there and then you'll see over the next few years whether it was worth it. Man. I was one of the things that really shocked me about the meeting was that um, you know this is a two billion dollar business. I think it's the best retailer on the ASX, and there was probably about thirty people there, and um, maybe a quarter to a half of them were um, auditors, staff, you know, officials. So this was a a very poorly attended HM uh, from a business that's two billion dollars and probably the the first retailer to to complete a successful international rollout in Australia. Um, I, I'm surprised by the lack of interest. I would have thought there'd be far more interest in a business like this. Nick, does that ever, do you ever use that? I mean, that's what, that's actually one of the key reasons I like going to AGMs. I want to see who else turns up. Um, are there fund managers there? Um, are there, is there a media over there? And, um, and just how many people are interested in this little story? Yeah, it's something um, I learned pretty early on. The I went to a conference. It's a small cap conference. I think it's run by perhaps Macquarie or Goldman Sachs. And there was I was sitting next to an investor, and he was just jotting down how many people were in the room for each presentation. Um, and it was it was really quite interesting. And he sort of went over, and he knew I was young and probably inexperienced, and 
experience and sort of said, oh, I like this company because only 12 people came and that was the lowest mm. of the day. So that's where I'm going to spend my time. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Pretty, <laughs> pretty informative. Um, mm. So yeah, no, it's definitely, definitely someone to notice. And I think um, with AGMs particularly, you can get catch management a bit out of their usual corporate spiel. Um, yep. Instead of you know, investor presentations or after results, where they just say the same thing over three or mm. four days to hundreds of people, so yeah, no, I think they're um, they're, they're incredibly important. I'm I'm quite new to them, Nate. In the past, we haven't gone to a lot of AGMs, and and you and I certainly we've been working together for for ten years, and we haven't gone to many AGMs together. But I've come around to AGMs. I'm quite willing now to travel and to spend time going to them. I think the small things you pick up really, really important, especially if you have a, a, a significant position size in the stock. Um, one of the things that I found interesting um, is that Victor was wearing um, a Levisa jewelry to the AGM and he made a point of kind of showing everyone. He gave some, he gave some of the guys the jewelry for free. Shoot, and, I, you know, I, I assume was, it wasn't earrings and a necklace. <laughs> I was going to leave you to guess what it was. No, it wasn't. He had some bangles. He had a whole bunch of bangles up his sleeve and um, he was wearing them. Um, I remember I saw this when I went to when I was um, dialed into the Aussie Broadband Investor Day as well. Um, it was their first Investor Day, and what was really interesting was that um, they all the entire team came dressed in uniform, um, and it wasn't just the CEO show. Even though the CEO is the founder, major shareholder, could have very easily been the CEO show. They had people from across that business, um, and you could just see the depth of knowledge and expertise. And you only really see that in these face-to-face interactions. So yes, yeah, Nathan, like I, I used to go to. Would you go to more? <laughs> I, I used to go to them religiously when I first joined really? Intel as an investor. You know, Greg Greg always loves to them, and I'm, I'm assuming you're with him there. Yesterday, yeah, yeah, we're with him. And so we went to mm-hmm. we went to a lot, and you know, particularly when I was learning about new businesses, because basically every business was essentially new to me in some way back then. Uh, I I wouldn't miss one. I'd I'd go to all of them, and I'd go every year. Uh, basically, you know, it was it was sort of reporting season, and then a couple of months later, it sent. Uh, AGM season, so you're back going into them, and 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 it was fun, you know, going around with Greg and learning from well, him and seeing what he liked and what didn't like, and catching up with some small companies he didn't know much about. Um, you know, it's obviously not as fun going to a Woolworths AGM and stuff, but where they just yes. sort of you know point out where what the like for like sales were and all that sort of stuff, and whether the dividends going to yeah. hold up. Um, you know, there's some were you know, and, and pre GFC, uh, you know, they were awesome too because like the Macquarie one. And there's uh, like a Simpsons episode where uh, Homer has a dream and he goes through Candyland and he's eating part of a, a dog and a house and stuff. He's just taking a chomp. Yeah. Well, yeah, I swear yeah, when I you it. came out of that meeting, because I had to run out early one day, um, you know, so I came out and I was the first one that came through and I just grabbed all these cream cakes and things like this. It was a, it was a, a, a lay on one, what's the word? Um a luncheon like you've never seen. You met the quality of the food and how much of it was was incredible. And I just went for the desserts. And ten minutes later, I had a terrible pain in the guts for whatever meeting I was heading off to. But and then the GFC come and then they really changed. You know, they really sort of shut up shop. Right. And and it wasn't just the you know the expense and sort of the lavishness where they were sort of almost trying to you know like not con investors, but you know make them feel good about owning the shares and whatever through means other than the performance of the business. Um, you know, you really saw a change in attitude from the management and the boards. You know, a lot of them were under a lot of pressure through the GSC. You know, Macquarie was a classic one. Like, um, you know, it's a, it's a company that people can't uh, say more nice things about these days. But 
in those two or three years during the GFC and afterwards, like no one could say a good thing at all about it, um, which is why the share price was in the teens. Uh, yeah. So, so they have changed. And I think the couple of other things that have changed is one, you, you know, you can uh, watch them online most of them these days. So that if you can't get there, because a lot of them are obviously in cities that you're not in, so it's a bit of an expense and, and a lot of time to go to different ones. So hopefully, you can log into them. And and the other thing too is. Uh, not to say <laughs> this will sound a bit horrible, but there was a guy uh, who died a, a year or two ago who used to just take over the annual meetings, and he really ruined the annual meetings for me because he, he was just trying to get attention himself, and he, and it was bad enough just him alone. But when you've got a couple of people applauding him and you know, patting him on the back, and uh, like it just turned into a circus. So you weren't learning anything about the business, and mm. like I'm all for people who want to keep boards and management accountable at the annual meeting. You know, like that's absolutely what they are there for, but there's still a professional way to go about it, and it's not about drawing attention to yourself. And this guy was just trying to be a comedian. Um, I can't actually think of his name because I'm sure a lot of people listening who've been day jams would know his name. But you know, he would suck up half an hour of just nothingness in in a short time of period. So there really wasn't any questions left or any time left to ask any interesting questions. And by that time, he'd already pissed off the board and the CEO and anybody else was there and most of the crowd. And so people had had enough and just wanted to shut him down and move on. So you really missed out on a great opportunity to learn something about the business that, all from this one individual's behavior, which I think spawned similar behavior from other people. So that's another reason he's not at these uh, big AGMs anymore where you know, he probably owned 50 shares in each business just so he could go and be the comedian yeah. at each AGM. Yeah, the boards are really strict on that stuff now. You, um, you know, I was at the New Hope AGM last year and geez, you don't want to be a clown at Rob Milner's show because uh, he was very, very strict at shutting down any sort of uh, funny behavior. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out was was the, it's it's a good opportunity, the, um, the board together. And, you know, I know we all like to think we're experts at judging human behavior when, when it's right in front of us, but it is the only time we get to see how these individuals who are, uh, are really in charge of these businesses where um, we're shareholders of interact with one another and um, sometimes you learn something and sometimes you don't I mean I'll point out two things um, uh, one about Lavisa one about Minres Lavisa's board is clearly they're clearly a bunch of individuals who work very well together you know they were extremely relaxed despite um, uh, pers- uh, the share price that had fallen by 25 percent over the last 12 months and um, same store sales sales that were down. They could have very easily been um, defensive, um, and they, they just weren't. Um, they clearly got along very well. It's, it's a board that works well together. I have seen boards where individuals just do not speak. It's just the chairman who speaks, and no one else has a word. Um, and there's tension between everyone, and, and you can you can see it. Um, the, and um, I've, I want to contrast that to, to Minres, who also has an excellent board, but just a very different uh, vibe coming from that business. You can see that that business is Chris Ellison. He dominates that board and that company in a way that I don't think I've seen too many ASX listed companies. Um, so you, you know that when you're investing in Minres, you know the guy in charge, you know who got the guy who calls all the shots. It's 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 Chris Ellison. Whereas, you know, LaVisa, you got Brett Blundy there with a 40% stake. He's clearly the man in charge, but this is a very collaborative effort, and I thought that was quite interesting. Nick, can I have one um, one board anecdote from you, and, and then we'll we'll try and um, move on. 
I might end on the corporate governance issue that I brought up with OpenAI mm-hmm. and just an example of it done incredibly poorly in a public company. Uh, and that, that company's Boeing. Um, when they had that 737 MAX um, d- disaster, uh, obviously a lot of attention was drawn to the board. And it's coming out now that it's just the complete and utter lack of culture around safety that this company had. So the board had no safety mandate. They found out later that the employees had a safety review board. So the board was completely unaware that that existed. Um, <laughs> in the in the board meeting agenda after Dang. the first crash, safety wasn't discussed. Like wow. safety wasn't an item on that um, on that uh, you know, in that meeting. Uh, and then you know the CEO left with a severance package of eighty million dollars. That wow. chairman um, that led the board during this time is now the CEO of the company. Um, and it's just, uh, yeah, the shareholders are now suing the, the board for what happened. Um, it's just it's just incredible. And I think we sometimes think about these things as, oh, we've, you know, it can't happen. Like they would have ticked all the boxes and everything's, um, yep. everything's yep. kosher. But it's, it's not the case and you've got to do the homework and, you know, for Boeing, one of the signs was there was hardly anyone on the board with aviation experience. They were all ex-government yeah. employees that were just there right. to collect the paychecks, really. Yeah. And that, that's a business that was universally regarded as a high-quality business. Um, you know, no one would have guessed yeah. that there were governance issues unless they had specifically gone and looked for them. That's a really good yeah, example. Yeah, and they're selling... And what they sell is reliability and safety, really. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are selling transportation, but that's why people are happy to get on these and why there's only two of them and not 500 of them. Because if mm-hmm. something goes wrong, uh, you know, 37,000 feet in the air, um, yeah, it goes horribly wrong. And, uh, you know, it's just incredible that there was no you know, safety mm-hmm. culture in this company at all and nothing nothing at the board level or no mm-hmm. oversight at the board level. Now, Nath, before we... Um, oh, let's... Let's, let's stop here for a quick break and we'll come back for one final segment. If you like the sound of our investing approach but you're not yet a member, visit intelligentinvestor.com.au and take a free 15-day test drive of our membership. You'll get immediate access to all our current buy recommendations, model portfolios and engaging educational research, tailor-made for people who want to manage their own money. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au for a free 15-day trial. No credit card required. Nate, if you had asked me any period of the last 10 or 15 years who my favorite investor was, I would have said Jim Chanos. He's the one I admire the most because he has a tough job. Chanos is, is perhaps the most famous short seller in the world. Um, he's famous mostly for uh, cracking Enron before anyone else, but he's, he's cracked a lot of difficult short cases. Wirecard was probably the most recent one. Um, famous for doing really in-depth um, accounting work, um, unconventional research, and then being extremely um, hard on his targets and public with with his research as well. But um, things have not turned out very well for Mr. Chernos over recent years. Nate, give us an update. No, I, I should add to um, I've seen him present a long time ago at a conference, and yeah. I've watched a lot of interviews with him, and he just seems like a really nice bloke as well, which... Uh, you don't often see with um, very successful hedge fund managers around the world. And, and you're always, everyone who talks about him always talks about him 
in a really you know, positive way, either through they work for him, what what they learnt when they worked for him, or whether it's just you know um, being friends with him as a fellow investor or whatever. Everyone speaks so highly of him. Uh, I've never heard a bad word said about him other than from CEOs who have been busted yes, by <laughs> I was going to say you haven't been talking to enough CEOs. The CEOs hate him, absolutely <laughs> loathe him, which is which is why we love him, right? Uh, to, to to maintain your conviction as a short seller publicly on yeah. a lot of these things is uh, extraordinarily difficult, and the and the payoff really isn't very big. Uh, like a a short book for most people is might be forty or fifty stocks with like less than half a percent position in them because if one of them just happens to go up and they can go up for all, any sort of crazy reasons, I meant. Imagine being short GameStop and went a hundred times or whatever it was. Um, yeah. You know, like any one position can almost blow you up. So it's a it's a hell of a lot of work, a lot of stress. Um, and what we've probably found is just um, to prove how difficult it is. I think uh, if I've got the number right, he had eight billion dollars of fun uh, right. under management during the GFC when obviously the shorts would have been paying off at their most, and people were were very frightened. So they definitely mm-hmm. after his services. And last week, uh, or earlier this week, he announced that he's closing down his hedge funds with US $200 million in them, uh, which I thought was astounding uh, to think that, that you know we, we've got more, in, in Aussie dollars at least, uh, we, we manage more money than that. And this is like a, a titan of an industry, and it just shows you how tough shorting is. Did you have um, much to do with channels? Did you follow him? Um, are you interested in shorting? I'm uh, not too interested in shorting, but I, I have followed Charles and I agree with Nathan. He comes across as you know, really nice and presents the thesis, as, I think, quite objectively. I mean, he was one of the first also, and I mentioned Wirecard, but raised a lot of issues about Alibaba and the corporate governance there and how this didn't yep. work. And that's when all these other fan managers were like, China's the next big thing. This is the you know Amazon of China. It's that easy. And he was like, hang on you might not actually own bits of this company. And he, really? it, it was right. And, and look, he doesn't, he probably didn't make any money off that short. And that's yeah. one of the reasons shorting so hard. And mm-hmm. um, I know, um, I think John Hempton, the famous Australian short seller, said that about Wirecard as well, that it's it's his biggest loss ever, even though his thesis was right. Um, yeah. Because, it, you know, he's wrong with the timing. Uh, and, it, you know, went through 100 <laughs> uh, before going to zero. And so it, it, it's a hard business, but um, you know, it's, I guess some CEOs will be probably happy to see him shutting down. I guess. <laughs> I think it's still it's like for a, a lot of investors, for a lot of investors out there, the idea that you can protect their portfolios from losses is still really appealing. You know, we don't hear. I haven't heard it a lot or at all for a long time from any of our members, but. And they mm. always people would be asking regularly about stop losses. You know, can I put mm. them in? And um, and they've just they've never made sense to me because if you bought the right business and you bought the right price, then you know I always used to think it was it was bound to the share price was bound to fall as soon as I bought some shares. I felt like that for the first ten years of my career, and uh, mm. now, now it's happening again. And so you never know what the path is. Um, but but as a long only investor, like the most you can lose is whatever you invest. Whereas on the short side, it's unlimited. And the thing is, it's really only probably once every 10 years that being short the market really pays off. So, yeah. you know, to have that front of mind all the time, it's really stressful. And you just put a lot of, you know, intelligence that could be in time that could be used elsewhere to find the next 
wise tech or zero or whatever it happens to be, which you know pays off massively and doesn't create the stress that the short stuff uh, does. So it's it never appealed to me from the start. You know, the mark we know the market goes up over time. Uh, timing is your friend when you're in good businesses. And then when I realised as a professional and learned more about how people did it, including from John Hempton about just how many companies you had to own and just how much time is involved in it. Mm. Like had like the thing I loved about investing was you find the good business and it does all the hard work for you. And if you don't like management or something changes, well, you just hit the button and you sell and you move on to the next one. But shorting is like the antithesis of that. It's the complete opposite. It's massively time consuming, massively stressful. And I, I think, you know, it doesn't really pay off. I can't really think of... You know, Jim Chanos was probably the person you put out there as being the most successful at it, and he's closing his shop. And you could make an argument that it's cyclical. You know, this is are we at the end of this incredible, you know, cheap money bull market and all the rest of it? And and maybe that's what it is. And maybe over the next couple of years, um, it'll pay off for him because he's opening a family office anyway to manage his own money and a few close friends, by the sounds of it. Um, but one thing I have noticed in the last uh, probably. 10 to 12 weeks is I have a spreadsheet with a list of esoteric overseas listed stocks and they're just stocks I've picked up from uh, fund manager letters over the last probably five years so so they're not thematic or they're not big stocks that anyone would know or anything like that but there is a heavy concentration of tech stocks in there and I've just noticed um, you know, up until the last couple of weeks where a lot of them have, have started to recover or prices are going up is just those share prices finally cracked. You know, it wasn't last year when we sort of had that first down move in the market. It's taken a couple of years now where things are finally starting to slow down and the revenues are falling and now they've got a lot of debt that needs rolling over. And you can see these things are actually going to be basket cases. And it's taken a long time. Like it's where nearly two years into this, yeah. uh, I don't know, this adjustment, let's say, of higher interest rates. And even the worst of these worst businesses are only just starting to crack. So, it tells me that this, you know, maybe the short sellers will be putting out some decent numbers um, from this last quarter. But even in saying that, there are still all these tech stocks, which I think call the the second liners or the pretenders, uh, which are no near, nowhere near as good as, you know, nothing as good as like Microsoft and all these great companies. These are the pretenders, um, but they're still sporting market values of tens of billions of US dollars. And mm-hmm. so I don't really think this growth stock phase or craze, if you want to call it that, is going to end until all those businesses are cracked. And the fact that Kathy Wood is still getting invited to seminars and still talking about ARC despite her horrendous returns tells me that uh, people are still punting on these things. And, we, and again, you mentioned at the start, Gore, about how many people are attending the ASX investor conferences. It tells me people are still up and about. You know, everyone's got their jobs. People are still speculating. Um, so that, you know, the end of free money and all that really has had very little impact uh, in the Western countries so far, and there's still a lot of stupidity around. Jeez, that's a that's a horrendous note to end on. So I'm going to add one more thing to it. <laughs> I, I love that point, Nate, about um, about the magic of investing. You know, I really felt that yesterday at Lavisa. Now, I was listening to um, the management speak about all the effort they go to about opening these stores, how much effort goes into designing them, the the hustle it takes to move inventory around the world and these guys are in 40 countries and they have to open you know between 150 and 200 stores a year and there's so much work uh, tens of thousands of people involved in doing it all and here i am um, able to put 
money in, sit there, drink my coffee, let them do all the hard work and earn the returns of their labor. And if that's not magic, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's the brilliance of investing. And um, we're, we're lucky we get to do it. That's, uh, that's why I would just, as much as I admire short sellers and I appreciate the rigor in their craft, I would never be one myself. It just makes no sense when you can do, sit back, buy a stock and let others do the work for you. A LaVisa customer told me the other day that uh, the shopping center mm-hmm. she was in, there's actually two LaVisa stores. Uh, I, yes. I can't yeah. think of any um, shopping centers where like a, a brand or shoppers had more than one store in there, uh, which just shows you how profitable they are and how much foot traffic they bring in. In the QVB in Sydney, there are two LaVisa stores within probably 50 meters of one another. And um, uh, the average revenue per store in in Australia is a million dollars. So if you believe the numbers, each of those stores earns a million dollars of revenue a year and they're 50 meters apart. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, well, it's amazing because we were here, everybody was worried about Domino strategy in Australia about, uh, I can't remember the name they had for it, but basically adding more stores in areas, yeah, fortressing, yeah. Um, you know, sort of putting just basically flooding areas with more stores. And it's yeah. like, oh yeah, but they're so close. And yet here's La Vista, like 50 meters away in the same shopping center. It's amazing. <laughs> to be fair, that is rare. They don't do that everywhere, but yeah, that's that's amazing. All right. Well, we finished on a high note. Um, happy to hear it, um, gents. Appreciate your time today, Nathan. Thanks for um, your time today. My pleasure, Gaurav. And can I just say this will be our last recording for the year because we've only got a few weeks left before the office closes for Christmas. So, first of all, a thank you to everybody who watches and all our subscribers and investors. Um, it's been a tough year, I think, in some ways. Um, frustrating because I think Ooh. we've got. Some great recommendations out there and some great undervalued stocks in the portfolios, but the market doesn't, really doesn't seem to care too much at the moment. Uh, but also thanks to you, Gaurav, I don't think people or certainly people underestimate both within the business and externally just how much effort you put in uh, to these recordings. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, and also thanks to Nick, who's uh, been with us now for what, 18 months and uh, is doing a great job on the international stuff and uh, um, and covering them on both here and in the the uh, newsletters, so it's. Uh, I actually think this has been the best year of content for our business ever. And uh, I was in Melbourne last week for the ASX Investor Day, and some people actually said um, that they thought it was the best content they'd ever seen in the business. And another guy who hadn't been with us for ten years was asking to subscribe again. So that's a real feather in the cap to you both, and, and John and Graham. So thanks again. Appreciate that, Nate. Thanks very much. And look, let me um, throw a shout out to, uh, to to Nick as well. Joined the business and just been uh, been a part of the furniture now. Bit bit like your uh, your your much maligned uh, filing cabinet there, Nick. You you're always going to be there, and uh, we're happy to have you. And um, we should also throw thanks to um, our producer Stephanie, who who works uh, behind the scenes to make sure we all sound good and say the right thing. Absolutely right, gents. Thanks for joining me, and for everyone else. Thank you for listening.